0: Our scripture for this evening is 1 John 2, 1 through 6, but before we read that, I'd like to read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, our text for this evening is 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. To begin with this evening, I would like to ask each of you to join me in a brief and simple thought experiment. For just a moment, if you would, let's each try and not think about a pink tree. Just please do not picture in your mind a pink tree anything but a pink tree. All right, well, I would venture to say that none of us were successful in that. Scientists like to use this little experiment to demonstrate what's called ironic process theory. This is a psychological process where our deliberate attempts to suppress certain thoughts ironically make them more likely to surface. Of course, in a way, this is kind of a silly game because you can't really even process the imperative to not think about a pink tree without thinking about a pink tree. But in another way, the idea of a command to do something influencing you to do it is kind of profound when it applies to moral categories and obedience to God. And John knows this when he says that and he writes these things, uh, when he writes these things so that we may not sin, because the reality is that one of the effects of, of the law is to increase sin. The moral clarity uh, and clearness that God reveals of himself and his good will for us, the, the more that we see it, the more uh, it, it remains in our unmortified sin to flare up and rebel against it. And Augustine once confessed when he was a boy that um, he once plucked pears from a fig tree just because he knew he wasn't allowed to. He didn't even want a pear. He just stole it and he threw it to the pigs. But because he had been told, hey, Augustine, don't eat those pears, don't steal them, his rebellious gears got to grinding and he flared up and rebelled. And Romans 5.20 tells us this, that this is plainly the case. The law came in to increase trespass. There's just... There's something in our fallen nature that does not want to be ruled. It wants autonomy and the right to do whatever is right in our own eyes or to be told or to do whatever we've been told not to do. And our desire to sin becomes most potent when the thing that we're told that we can't have is not something just like a frivolous pair. The hardest temptations come when we are challenged with something good and lovely, which we might enjoy if it were God's plan for us. Perhaps it's even once been ours. Perhaps it will even be ours once, again one day. But the desire or the prayer of our heart now is met with a no. And now we're faced with responding. Your will be done, Lord, or no. I will pursue this. Your will for me is not good. You are not good for withholding this thing for me. I know what's best for me. Well, in our passage this evening, John wants to unpack for us an aspect of our redemption that, by the Spirit, helps mortify our rebellious sin and transforms our affections and our actions. So, of course, while John is is writing for our benefit today, his immediate audience was several congregations in and around Ephesus, and uh, which were especially close to his heart. Those congregations, they may have had a large number of youths in them or young adults, because later he makes a specific uh, application to young men, and. The simpler Greek of 1 John may be evidence that he was trying to write in a particularly digestible way to young adults. Or, by little children, John's point may merely be, more as he he expresses himself in 3 John, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the Lord. And by this he meant anyone whom he had had a, a personal influence on training them up to maturity in the faith, Either way, their unique struggle with false teaching is personal to John, and he wants to help them tenderly. And so these six verses then are saturated with John conveying to them that in their temptations and their struggles and even their failures, God is tender and personal with them and with all of his people. He says, if anyone... Does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, first of all, God does not look down on us to terrify us like the eye of Sauron if we fail. He is our helper in not sinning, and He's our helper to pick us up when we do. This word helper here is uh, the same word often used actually of the Holy Spirit, our, our paraclete, our helper. And so, we actually have more than one helper in both the Spirit and in Christ. And Jesus speaks this way of himself in uh, John 14 when he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And you can kind of even see the parallels there with him talking about keeping the commandments. So, How is Jesus our helper? Well, firstly, he makes it clear that he is for us and not against us. He sympathizes with our weakness, and he is even empathetic. And yet, this is hard for us to really believe because Jesus never sinned. So how can someone who has never sinned empathize with a sinner? you know, maybe we can understand how the high priests in the Old Testament may empathize with us because they still had to have sacrifices for their own sins. But the righteous one, wouldn't he just sort of think of us and and, and look down and say, see, this is how it's done. This is how you don't sin. But he doesn't. Not at all. It's actually because of the fullness of temptation and suffering that he experienced as he righteously and victoriously endured on his behalf that he's empathetic with us. And while he hasn't experienced all of our particular temptations, he didn't, for example, experience the unique temptations of a pregnant woman, he did face temptation on the whole, superlatively, to a degree that none of us have. And he faced the core temptation, commonality of temptation, as we do, which is to recoil from God's providential plan for your life, especially when you can imagine a different one that hurts less. Because, as John will get into in a moment, sin is always personal against God. His commands are not just a list of pragmatic do's and don'ts or tools that will make your life better. They are the heart of God expressed to us in ways that we may emulate him. But just as following his father's moral will and enduring the providential will, uh, but but just as, as following his father's moral will and enduring his providential will involved a great deal of suffering for Jesus, so too for us, much of the catalyst of our sins is the inability to just sit in pain and disappointment to face hard providences and just endure without reaching for something to numb it whether it be a dopamine fix a a social media infinite scroll or alcohol or whatever else but Jesus didn't numb his pain he let himself feel it He sweat great drops of blood over it. He talked with his father in the garden about it. And he wrestled with seeing if there was any way for this cup to pass. And yet he said, your will be done. And indeed, this is exactly what propitiation means. Christ appeasing the wrath of God for us. His works on our behalf in salvation are manifold. But John speaks particularly of this work of Christ as our propitiation because it's in Christ enduring temptation amidst such suffering and injustice and taking the wrath that we deserve that his empathy with us flows from. So Jesus understands temptation in ways that, that no one else can understand. He has, this means that he has no contempt for your weakness because he endured so much suffering under temptation and didn't sin, so he can be our helper, both in, in treating us tenderly in our in, in our missteps and in teaching us how to not sin. And we are safer with Jesus than even resting in the motherly arms of Mary. In Romanism, there's this understandable draw to find a maternal help with Mary. A mother's love is truly meant to be a safe place for her children. But if Rome truly knew the tenderness of Christ towards sinners, they wouldn't need to make an idol out of Mary as they do. So, when we're tempted to hide from God because of our sin and to say like Peter, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, you don't have to hide. And you don't have to spiral into a dark place where you feel unlovable. We are known and we are loved in Christ, even if we sin. And he's not ashamed, therefore, to call you his brothers and his sisters and to advocate for you to the Father. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, this whole world is not teaching us that Christ is the propitiation for every individual in the world so that regardless of whether or not someone is elect or not or trust in Christ or repentant or not, the blood of Christ appeases the wrath of God for all. The point here is that there is no propitiation for anyone apart from Christ in the whole world. All roads do not lead to God. All roads... And all religions do have their moral laws and their sense of guilt and a desire for justice. But none of them have a holistic answer to sin that frees us from the wrath of God and gives us a condemnation-free path to growing in righteousness. Jesus is the only way that we can know that we know God. All other paths turn morality into pragmatism or emphasize whatever particular moral is is convenient or interesting to us at the time and all other paths drown us in guilt or lift us to pride at our own self-righteousness and none of them bring us into a true personal relationship with god no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In the whole world, it is only Jesus that can save sinners from sin and bring them into a secure relationship with God where we know that we can and that we do know Him. But now, it may be a little bewildering at several points in 1 John when we read things like, if we keep His commandments, that doesn't sound very secure. And so we need to back up for a second and remember what is John doing with this book overall? What is his point? His goal is to give Christians assurance of their faith. And while it may seem like these ticks, tick boxes that he apparently wants us to introspect and then, and then uh, check off could actually be discouraging, they're, they're not meant to be so. John will constantly paint Christians and the world as polar opposites. And while he's being hyperbolic to make a point, he's not being naive. There are things about you as Christians that are very different from the world. And if these things aren't part of you at all, it should give you pause. Everything happening in you because of Christ, he relates back to the real and true physical incarnation and work of Christ, because of that, you walk in the light, which has two prongs. You confess that you've sinned and that you still do sin, and you seek to walk in holiness. And your success in arresting sin and being holy as he is holy may look something between 1 and 99 percent righteousness, but... It's not going to be zero, and it's not going to be 100% until the next life. But it's not going to be that you completely reject seeking repentance out of hand. The second thing about you is that you will walk in love. And we'll touch on this in a minute. And like walking in light, walking in love is another basic of being a Christian with a particular nuance that is completely unlike the world also, and also relates at its core to the real incarnation of Christ, and is also not about needing to be perfect in your love to feel secure. It's about having a certain kind of unique Christian love, to, to some degree. So, John is trying to tell his dear children in the faith, you are in Christ if you see uniquely Christian light and love working in you, this this stuff is not natural; it's supernatural. Miracles may have ceased in redemptive history when it when it uh, comes to tongues or prophecy, because Christ has come and the canon is complete. But it is a miracle when these things are happening inside of you. They make you completely unlike the world. They are evidence that just as Christ actually came in the flesh, he is actually working in you to make you a new creation. And so with that zoomed out perspective, let's kind of zoom back in here. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So... Uh, You'll be somewhere, again, between 1% and 99% obedience here in this life to God's commandments with a genuine desire for eventual holiness as He is holy. But what you don't need to see in yourself is absolute sinless perfection. Though some evangelical churches might get frustrated with us saying this. And to be fair, it's a little bit understandable why some might get impatient with Christians who grow in sl- slowly in obedience. After all, their view of sinless perfection does try to make sense a little bit of us seeking to be holy as he is holy, and it fears compromise. But if sinless perfection as a test for being a Christian with some super baptism of the Spirit was what John was talking about here, why did John begin by drilling home that if we say we are without sin, we are liars? Note that he didn't say in chapter 1, that if we say we were sinner, uh, without sin. No, he says that if we say we are without sin, we are liars. And why then does the Lord's Prayer give us a model where we are to continually ask for the Lord's forgiveness and for us to, and uh, to forgive our debtors, as we forgive our debtors? So it's not about sinless perfection in this life. But there is a real tension that we live in daily, a sort of a paradoxicalness that would be so theologically difficult to explain if it wasn't for the plain and honest experience of everyday life of every christian in history that we want to not sin and yet we do we live with this tension of accepting perfection as the goal and managing a seeming paradox where we where we ought to not treat grace as a license to sin but where indeed Every day in our life, sin abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So John is saying, if you aren't walking in this tension because you think that you've arrived at sinless perfection, or if you've decided to not even get in the fight, and you're just you are just stunningly lacking in basic self awareness as a Christian, and indeed you are lying and you were walking in darkness and you were living in a facade so when john says in verse 4 whoever uh, the, or the one who says i know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him doesn't keep means that there is no genuine effort to obey god's uh, to obey god because there's this disconnect and a superficiality for them when it comes to the very idea of what religion means and what it means to follow God. That's partially because the normative understanding of of gods throughout history is that they just didn't really care about ethics very much. They wanted labor or the attention of being loved or feared or whatever, but God's law the real and true god's law is based on his very nature so that to reject what he says is not a rejection of any arbitrary set of tasks put forth by gods who are fickle or immoral themselves but to not obey is to say i reject walking with you i do not desire to get to know you i don't want to understand your your purposes i don't think i don't want to think your thoughts after you there's Nothing objective and good for me in your commands, and you do not tell me what to think or how to act. I will decide what is right for me. I will do what is right in my own eyes. And so that rejection is personal. And John says that to confess that you know the true and living God is to be seeking to be like Christ, who himself is the express image of God, and will... and we will one day wake to find ourselves perfected and like him. But for now, it's enough for the servant to be like his master. So, we have to be seeking repentance. And we can't be, also on the other side, crushing our brothers and sisters with an expectation of perfection. Instead, there's a contentment that we can rest in as we own whatever degree of faith that we've been granted in this life. And if you're somewhere on that spectrum, beloved, you can tick this box of introspection when you doubt your own identity, and you can be encouraged that the helpers are working faith in you, and that God will finish the good work that he started in you. Because... All of God's promises are bundled together. They come as a as a as, as a, an altogether thing. You are chosen to be justified and sanctified and glorified, and nothing can arrest God's whole work being completed in you. Verse five. But whoever keeps his word, in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Now, in this verse, the phrase is perfected has also proven to be a tricky curveball for Benny. Those in the sinless perfection camp want to jump in and chime in here again and say, um, excuse me, per- perfected, there it is. And it would seem like they have a point on their side if we take it at its face value. It appears to be saying that if you have become perfectly sinless, you can know that you are in Christ. And a more wooden translation doesn't really make the situation any better because there is a finality to this statement grammatically. Uh, it, it, it's not is being perfected. It's has been perfected or has reached perfection. So the liars that made it through chapter 1 without admitting that they're, uh, they're still sinners, they say, ah, see, here it is. We can lay this burden on you. The Bible says it. Us perfect ones are the truth-tellers. One, we previously thought through several reasons why sinless perfection is nonsense. If we say we're without sin, the Lord's Prayer, our basic honesty about our experience with reality in our own heart. And two, we've just touched on another reason it's nonsense, which is that the context here is John is linking the rejection of obedience with rejection of the incarnation and who God is. Nothing in 1 John would lead us to believe that the presenting problem he's concerned with stamping out is that some people just don't believe John and a handful of other Christians are a special upper echelon of perfected saints looking down on the mucky, ignorant congregants who still sin. That's just... Clearly not what John is talking about. Third, and this is the biggest one, the word perfected used here, it's not really associated with moral perfection in the rest of the word. The idea is that obedience and love are perfected when they are not merely theoretical or just a disposition of the heart. Obedience is perfected when it births real tangible acts of love. Just as the obedience of the Son to the Father was not merely to love us by looking down from heaven and seeing our plight as sinners and saying, Yes, Father, I do pity them. I feel for them. What else do we want to talk about? It's it's not that. No, he humbled himself, he descended to be truly born in the flesh among us, to truly take up the mantle where Adam and Abraham and Moses and David came up short. And he walked in perfect righteousness as a human in our place, and he actually physically died on the cross in the place of his people. This is real obedience. So the idea of having been perfected is that you will notice in yourself as a saint that you feel that just feeling for others isn't enough. You have a desire to do more. And when a saint amongst us has a need, when an email goes out saying that one of us needs prayer or company or a meal or a ride, we pray. And we see if we can rearrange our calendar or a budget. Indeed, this idea of perfection having to do with loving tangibly rather than merely idealistically or philosophically is introduced in this verse along with the first use of the word love in the book. And love is that second scaffolding on which the whole of the book is built. Walking in light and love are the basics of walking in the same way that Jesus walked. And here's a little spoiler for you of things to come in the future of First John, which connect all of these thoughts. In chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, we read in First John, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is tangible. It's not docetic. It's not theoretical. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need— yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See how it's been, it's been perfected in him. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Notice all those themes just interacting there together. So, brothers and sisters, please be reassured this evening in your hearts before him as you believe christ came in the flesh and truly laid down his life for us and, had, and it's caused any degree of change in you to admit that you have been and still are a sinner and to be moved in any degree to repent with the happy hope that you will one day wake up and be like him in glory if you are moved at all to actually pray and meet the needs of your brothers and sisters. And and by the way, prayer is on the side of being a tangible thing. If that is all that you can give, it's not just a thought. It's a real work that you're doing. If these things are at work in you at all because of what Christ has done for you, you are night and day different from the world. And you ought to be assured that you are in Christ and while sometimes from the outside, from a distance, we all appear to be a muddy mess, slipping and stumbling on the road, looking at like being in the rain, John reveals that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And that the direction that yours is pointing reveals that you have been set walking in the way. And it leads to a different destination than the world your eternal abode with God, where we will will forever know and be known by our righteous and tender and personal Savior God. Amen. Would you pray with me?